Open your scriptures to 1 John chapter 5. In the last hymn we sang, it says, The night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And we're going to start in verse 5, where it asks a question. 1 John 5, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This morning, it's going to be easy to imagine, once we start working through this text, a courtroom setting in which John is calling for, forward six different witnesses. And you're going to see these witnesses appear in this passage of Scripture. And what comes as a surprise as we work through the different witnesses is that your, you yourself will be called to the stand. Not to defend yourself. These witnesses are not against you but they are actually for you. John's purpose is to provide assurance to those who are truly born again. And in doing so, he has found it necessary to refute false teachers and expose their lies. That's never popular when you have to take on that kind of ministry. Remember, the purpose of this letter, you're already open to 1 John chapter 5, so just look at verse 13. John is giving you the, the reason why he is writing this letter he says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the second to last sermon in our series in 1 John. Next week will be the final sermon, and it will actually include uh, that purpose text. Like John, my attempts through preaching this letter have not been to get believers to doubt their salvation. Actually, when I was first thinking through this, I had said I'm not getting anyone to doubt their salvation. But that's not true. I am trying to get those who are clutching to a false profession to doubt what they are trusting in. I think that has come through. I believe my mission and motives have been clear. I hope that my, my tone and approach are not unlike Jesus and John's when they too confronted false teachers. I mean, you have it throughout the Gospels, Jesus uh, strongly confronting the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of his day and exposing false teaching. Fake followers, empty professors, should be uncomfortable when they hear the words 
of John in this letter. What, what, what John does for us, if we were to take between, sort of between two worlds, John's world and our world, what, what the letter of 1 John does, it, it, it presses against an evangelical culture that has spawned and nurtured easy believism. I'm not sure you're familiar with that term, but even Billy Graham, when he was 94 years old, challenged this idea. This is not a, a, a critique or a, a commendation of his ministry, simply calling out in an interview in 2013 where Billy Graham warned against an epidemic of easy believism. It's interesting. The first question was how he refers to himself as an evangelical or a Christian and why. And he stated this. What really matters is how God sees me. He isn't concerned with labels. He is concerned about the state of one's soul. And Graham goes on to tell the story of his own testimony where he thought he was a Christian, but later realized after he experienced the spiritual new birth, something John develops in John chapter 3 in his account of the gospel, that he was never saved. And what Billy Graham then said is that what accompanies a new birth must be a new life. He said this, quote, if there is no change in a person's life, he or she must question whether or not they possess the salvation that the gospel proclaims. Many who go to church have not had a life changing transformation in Christ. The interviewer asked, why, according to the title of your book, is salvation the reason for your hope? And his response gets to the concern of easy believism. He says, quote, as I approached my 95th birthday, I was burdened to write a book that addressed the epidemic of easy believism. There is a mindset today that if people believe in God and do good works, they are going to heaven. But there are many questions that must be answered. There are two basic needs that all people have, the need for hope and the need for salvation. It should not be surprising that people believe easily in a God who makes no demands. But this is not the God of the Bible. Satan has cleverly misled people by whispering that they can believe in Jesus Christ without being changed. But this is the devil's lie. First, John pushes against the idea that somehow we've got our ticket to heaven even if our life never reflects the character and nature of a new birth. It pushes against the idea that simply because I walked down an aisle and repeated a prayer that I'm converted. That may be part of your conversion experience. I'm not taking that away. But that is not why you were saved. The gospel is not a formula to be recited or a three-step process. It is a gift to be received. So how can you know that you are truly born again? First John, we've been in here for weeks now. John upends the notion that simply because you have a date written in your Bible reminding you of the day you asked Jesus into your heart is not sufficient. That may be an actual date when your new birth happened. But how will you know for sure that that date actually marks a transformation in Jesus Christ? First John. John has repeatedly drawn attention to three tests. Last week we called them spiritual birthmarks. They are one, right belief, the doctrinal mark. Two, right love, the relational mark. And three, right behavior, the ethical mark. And maybe by now you'll know the theme that we've been working with. We've tried to repeat it nearly every week through the series. 
But the theme is marks of authentic Christian faith and experience, orthodoxy, right teaching, and orthopraxy, right living. And in our text this morning, the Greek word martis translated testify, witness, testimony, born, or give testimony occurs ten times. And it's a beautiful picture because the courtroom is good news. And if you, if you would kind of imagine six witnesses lined up here this morning, and they are not here to cast judgment upon you or to condemn you. These witnesses are actually called forward to fulfill the theme of First John, and that is to give you the assurance that you may know that you have eternal life. So John calls forward these six witnesses to provide confidence and assurance. Look at the legal terms. Look at verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. Verse 7. For there are three that testify. Verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that He has borne. That word sort of gets hidden, but it's the same Greek word as testified or witnessed. Verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the, there it is again, testimony that God has borne, again, testified or witnessed concerning his Son. Verse 11, and this is the testimony. Six different witnesses to testify, to sort of bring forward a witness to give you the assurance that you are truly born again complementary perspectives that affirm a single truth. And this is the truth. Jesus is the Son of God who gives eternal life. Let's look at the first witness. It's the witness of Jesus' baptism. We're not going to keep reading all these passages, but I am going to have you look at the text to see the different words that sort of pop out from the passage. From verses 6 through 8, the word water occurs four times. Verse 6, by water... And again, it says not by water only. Then it says, but by the water. And then verse 8, the spirit and the water. So what does John mean by using this word water? He's communicating something that would have been understandable to his audience, but has sort of gotten lost in translation over the years. Some, including Augustine, interpret this as the water that flowed out of Jesus' side when he was pierced by a soldier. Matter of fact, John 19.34 uses the phrase blood and water. It says, but when one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Others believe water and blood refer to the two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's easy to see how they would conclude that. This is how Martin Luther and John Calvin interpreted those two phrases, water and and blood, But the problem is John is not concerned in this letter anywhere with church ordinances or liturgy or the form of worship. What he is concerned about is Jesus coming in the flesh, his incarnation in history. He's focusing on Jesus' career, his work. So if you look at these two terms, he's basically framing up Jesus' earthly ministry where he was inaugurated and affirmed at his baptism and completes that work at his crucifixion, the water and the blood. 
John is teaching that Christ's incarnation is a necessity, but it must include his sacrificial ministry as well. So it's not only about the enlightenment where Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. That's not the whole ministry. The entire ministry is, yes, his baptism identifying with his people, not because of his sin or an issue of anything of sin for him, but a substitute for our sin and the response to being a substitute for our sin, which is his death. Look at verse six. Look at how these terms are put together. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only. See, it's not just the affirmation that he is the son of God heard by the father's voice at his baptism, but by the water and the blood. For there are three that testify the spirit and the water and the blood, water and blood sum up Jesus incarnational ministry. How is baptism a witness of who Jesus is? If we look at this as referring to Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan, how is that a sufficient witness? Well, it was in the Jordan River that he was declared to be the Son of God. And it's probably the historical background is John is pushing against similar teachings from Corinthus and others that said at his baptism, the Spirit of the Christ descended on the man Jesus but abandoned him on the cross. John is refuting that teaching. And what he is saying is he all along was the eternal son and affirmed to be the son of God at his baptism. As a matter of fact, John provides a witness to this witness, if we could. Let me read John chapter 1, beginning in verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness, listen to what he says, that this is the Son of God. The baptism of Jesus is so important, it is found in all four accounts of the Gospel. And it is where the triune God reveals Jesus to be who he is. Let me read Matthew's account. Matthew 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Here's, here's an additional description. And behold, a voice from heaven said... This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The father affirming at his baptism that this is his son. I love how the New Living Translation says, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. The father's words, when he declares that from heaven, are a combination of Psalm 2, verse 7, which is a messianic psalm, and Isaiah 42, 1, which is the first of the servant songs. So what, 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 what he is saying in that affirmation is he is the anointed son who will be king, but he will be a king who dies. So what does the witness of Jesus' baptism say? It says, look at the Holy Spirit descending upon this man who is not a mere man. It says, listen to the voice of the Father's proclamation saying, this is the Son of God. Let's look at the second witness. It's the witness of Jesus' death. 
The word blood is used three times in verses 6 through 8. And what John is doing is he is refuting any teaching, teaching that demotes or belittles the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Verse 8. The Spirit and the water and the blood. These three agree. So any view of the incarnation of Jesus Christ that excludes Christ's genuine death on the cross, that the Son of God actually died, is not a biblical view of the purpose of the incarnation. And in fact, Paul said this in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to what? Do you know the verse? Not just to reveal the Father, but to save sinners. That's the purpose of the incarnation. John records in John 19.30, When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His Spirit. That's why we say that the earthly work of Jesus Christ is framed up by His baptism and His crucifixion. A finished earthly ministry. It's amazing to think of the eternal Son of God entering world, this world in space and time to die as a sin sacrifice. Every hymn we sang this morning highlighted that feature. We sing in praise because we confess we have no other hope aside from that fact. John uses the word propitiation. In 1 John 2 verse 2 he says this, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What he's saying is Jesus came. Yes, He was affirmed to be the Son of God at His baptism, but He had to die as a sin sacrifice to appease the Father's wrath. That's what propitiation means. He said it again in 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. His death was not an accident. His death was not simply martyrdom. It was a divine, saving substitution for sinners. Paul said in Romans 3.25 that God put forward Christ as a propitiation by His blood. See, not by water only, John says, but by water and the blood to be received by faith. And the author of Hebrews said in chapter 2, verse 17, Christ had to be made like His brothers. He had to become human in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Listen to what he says again. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. The cross says this. The King of Heaven, the Son of God, came down. He who was rich became poor so that you might become rich. And the only way that is possible is by the shedding of His blood and His death on the cross. It was at the crucifixion that a Roman centurion who, who really illustrates the proper Gentile response to the Jewish Messiah, he said this, Truly, this man was the Son of God. A proper confession of who Jesus is. John has another witness to the water and the blood. This is the third witness called to the stand, and it's the Holy Spirit. We won't read 
verses six through eight again. We've read that twice already. But the spirit is referenced three times in verses six through eight. In verses seven to eight, the spirit is explicitly added to the water and the blood. And it says these three affirm basically these three share one single view. Jesus said in John 16, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Of course, the disciples were sad when they heard that. But on, on some of these occasions, when Jesus was prophesying his own death and moving towards Jerusalem, he said, I know your hearts are saddened by hearing this. So it, it would have been hard for them to believe this. It's better for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict another legal term. He will convince the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit's ministry, one of his primary ministries is to convince us not of sins, but of sin singular. And it is the sin of unbelief. The Spirit stands here as a witness to tell you He has done that work in your heart. He has convicted you and convinced you to the point you obeyed. Mark 1.15 where Jesus says, Repent and believe. Romans 8.16 then says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. There's that word witness again. That we are children of God. You did not make it through last week. Without sin, I am assuming. But do you have this witness in your heart regardless? That your spirit cries out and says, Father, even when you fall 27 times with the same sin, is it your heart that cries out, Father? That is what the Holy Spirit does as a witness in our own heart. As a matter of fact, Galatians 4, 6 says this, And because you are sons, because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. It's the same term Jesus used for the Father when He was suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you cry out to God like that in your pain and your doubt and your failure? That's the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. There's a fourth witness, and it is surprising and powerful because of its uniqueness. It is the witness of the Father. Can you imagine a court setting where all these other witnesses are coming forward and the Son is, is sort of on trial, but then they call the Father forward? Can you imagine the silence, sort of the reverence, the anticipation of what is going to happen? Look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar because He has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. 
difficult not to think about the schism in John's church on this point where human testimonies were clamoring to be heard and everybody wanted to have a voice and everybody was complaining or, or claiming to have this divine unction and speaking on behalf of God, yet out of their mouth came lies. What John is saying is all your testimonies, all your claims must come up against not all the other human points of view, but against a singular firm point of view. And it is the Father's. The Father's testimony demands a response from everyone. Matter of fact, to not believe the Father's testimony about the Son, which He began to make at the baptism, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. To not believe the Father's testimony is to call Him a liar. It's actually to say, as, as you are called forward as a witness in this court, you are guilty of perjury. You are lying about your own son, which would be a travesty. But Titus tells us that God cannot lie. Look at verse 10. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. In John chapter 5, there's a similar section where all these legal terms, witness and testimony, spring up. Jesus said this in John 5. Let me begin reading in verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. Right? Yet another legal term. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself... My testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Okay, what is he saying? That John was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Listen to what he says. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, of course, in the Gospel of John is shaped around these seven signs, these miracles. He says, the works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So what witness does the Father provide? Read the Gospel of John. It's not about mere doctrine or right orthodoxy. It is about life. And the testimony of the Father has to do with life, as we'll see in verses 11 and 12. Here's the surprising witness. It's the fifth witness out of six. It's the witness of your own conversion. John now ties together two things, an outward confession with an inner witness. Look at verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. What John is saying is what we confess with our mouth must be real in our hearts. Under threat of death, you may confess something with your mouth to avoid being martyred, but it may not be true in your own heart. What John is doing is he is forcing an alignment between mouth confession and heart belief. Paul said it this way in Romans 10, because if you confess with your mouth that the Lord, that Jesus is Lord, 
But look at what he adds. He tethers it to, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And now he tethers it back to the verbal confession. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. All John is saying is you are a witness to yourself because only you know if your mouth and your heart are connected. So I could make a confession. Make a public confession with my mouth. I believe the teachings of Confucius are the only true way for eternal life. But my heart doesn't believe that. I could say that if I was in a land where they're going to where they were going to martyr me and it would be it would be weak for me to bend. But I could make a verbal. Conf- I know all along in my heart. I don't believe that. So can somebody say, I believe Jesus Christ is the son of God, the only way for salvation. But you do not believe that in your heart. And you know that. What John is saying is mouth and heart must be connected. So when I say, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the only way to the Father who grants salvation as a gift, not only does my mouth say that, my heart believes that. And the Scriptures say, I am saved. It's interesting that John does not point us back to a prior experience. Right? He's actually saying whoever believes right now, he says, look right now, today, to the present testimony and witness in your own heart. So I'll ask you this. Whom are you trusting right now? And do you believe there is another way to receive forgiveness or to get to heaven? Do you believe a pope or a prophet or a Buddha or a set of rituals or your own works form the basis of your salvation? Where is your hope and confidence right now? I will say this. If Jesus Christ is not my Savior by grace alone, through nothing that I have done, then I have no hope. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one goes to the Father except through Him. I've said that verbally. I believe that in my heart. Where is your hope right now? Not knowing the exact moment you're saved, that may be helpful, but that doesn't mean you're born again. A past experience is very helpful. But what is your present day testimony in this moment? So John calls his final witness to the stand. In verses 11 to 12, he says this. Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us. And really the final witness is a result and a hope. He gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The connection between having the Son and having life is so essential that John will mention the title, the Son, seven times in verses 9 to 13. And he'll use the word life five times in verses 11 to 13. And he's talking about an eternal life, a God-quality kind of life not simply a matter of duration most of us don't want to live this life forever and the older you get the truer that becomes right 17 year old will be like no this is awesome i want to live this forever no you don't not once baldness and bunions and bulges and bags start creeping in you're like this is eternity in this body no thank you Etern- eternality has a particular character to it I believe it has an amazing aesthetic that we have never seen before 
an intense joy that maybe we've only seen little glimpses of and pleasures beyond our imagination as well as a never-ending duration. I, mean, we, I, I remember as a young boy sitting in the First Baptist Church of Doylestown, Pennsylvania, singing hymns and thinking, is this what heaven's going to be like? Because I can't even endure this for an hour. And, and sometimes I think we fail to project the beauty and the amazement of what the new heaven and the new earth and the new city are going to look like and be like. And so what, what God is offering to you in the Son is life, not just duration, but a quality of life that is amazing. Romans 6.23, for the wages, the penalty, the payment of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The life that the Son offers is not to be earned. Not only can't you pay for it, you don't have to. It's free. It's a gift. It's simply, you, you just reach out and receive it. That's the beauty of the gift of God's grace that places everyone on equal footing. Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Two points in conclusion. First, God has given us six witnesses. Will you believe the evidence Maybe you're just prone to doubting, but you are truly born again. Would you listen to the witnesses that John has called forward so that you may know that you have eternal life? Bertrand Russell was a well-known atheistic philosopher who authored over a hundred books and was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for Literature in 1950. And one of his most popular books entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian... Russell argues that all religions are barbaric superstitions that have no basis in reality. On one occasion, Russell was asked, what would you say to God if all of a sudden you found yourself standing before him? Russell's answer, I probably would ask, sir, why did you not give me better evidence? Even Romans 1.20 says this, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Add to that these six witnesses. And I don't believe that excuse will stand up before the throne of God. Second, the cross must remain central to all we are and preach. A gospel without blood is not good news. Because the wages of sin is death. Something has to die for my sin. And it's either me or it is God's provision of His own Son. I want to ask our music team to come forward. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 24 while they get into place. But Listen to what Paul says about keeping the cross central. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it, the cross, is the very power of God. As the Scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in His wisdom saw to it that the world would never know Him simply through human wisdom, 
He has used our foolish preaching of the cross to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. And it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, right, not only by the water, but water and the blood, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Final question. Do you have the Son? Verse 12, 1 John 5, whoever has the Son has life. But whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. In response to the beauty contained in this passage and the truth, we're going to sing a hymn of response called Jesus, Thank You. I just want to read the second stanza and the chorus. By your perfect sacrifice, I've been brought near. Your enemy, you've made your friend. Pouring out the riches of your glorious grace, your mercy and your kindness know no end. Because your blood has washed away my sin, Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. That's propitiation. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. If you have the Son, you have life. Would you sing this song from your heart as a genuine thank you, Jesus? Let's pray.